Oh, except we didn't get your joke in, so. No, I have no joke. How were you gonna do your joke? How were you gonna do your joke? <laughs> Here. I have no joke Again, to share. this is why we record everything, so we have, have all no of this joke in the to bloopers. Share. It's okay. I hear good to go. You wanted to hold on. You wanted to end with a joke, but you have no joke. No, I said, why don't we all end with a group joke if we have anything like if we can crack on something? Music this week we by the uh, by Shantanu's <laughs> new. K-pop indie boy band. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to another episode of The World in Perspective. I am Cameron Vasquez, Editor-in-Chief of ITS and your host. Joining me from Kolkata is Rushali Shaha. Hi, great to be here. And Mega Gupta. Yes. Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast. And Shantanu Roy Chaudhary is in New Delhi and Ish- Ishrar Hassan is joining us from Dhaka. Yeah, hey, hey everyone. Hey everyone. Thank you for being here. So today we're going to be talking about the Indo-Pacific region, security and geoeconomics. But before we get started, I want to to know what you guys think about this. I think for ITS, we should start a new band and call it the Indie Pacific and can be like run out of the South Asia program and kind of get everybody together. It kind of has like K-pop undertones to it, maybe. We want to tie in everybody, right? With the quad and and sort of all the plus members. In India. You know, a lot of... You just hear the drum come in. So I'm sorry, a lot of northeast of India is influenced by K-pop, like major half of it. So we, you get you get some people from the, I don't know what, <laughs> what kind of genre we call that, then it's like in, in, Indo-K-pop from the <laughs> northeast area of India. Then we're going to bring in like some Australian indie singers and they can do like the vocals. <laughs> and then you just kind of have this sort of eerie moment when like, there's a jung and an electric guitar kind of competing for space, and that'll be the U.S. Sino Sino American rivalry. I feel like that's rivalry. a bad idea. <laughs> I feel like that's a bad idea. There's enough infighting in itself. And we're going to be talking about it today. But before, uh, for all of our listeners who may not know what the Indo-Pacific is, uh, in terms of just the space and why are we talking about this specific, you know, term now for this region. Uh, Rushali, why don't you kind of take us through what is the Indo-Pacific per se and and why has it gained such prominence in sort of international affairs discourse? Uh, So the term Indo-Pacific in itself gained a lot of um, like recognition in the 2017. However, it dates back to much uh, long ago. Uh, It can be traced back in the works of uh, Panikkar, who's uh, an Indian naval, uh, like a theorist. And it was in his works that he wrote about the influence of uh, two oceans. And then later it was again alluded to by Shinzo Abe much later in his speech in the Indian parliament. But I think the most interesting thing about Indo-Pacific is how it's replacing Asia-Pacific. Because Asia-Pacific in itself had a very continental dimension. And most importantly, I feel like it left India out. But the Indo-Pacific construct, which is emerging, which is in itself a geopolitical construct, if I may say so, like it is a mental space which has emerged. It doesn't really have defined geographical boundaries in itself, but it is a term which is getting uh, leverage in diplomatic uh, community particularly because I feel like a primary reason is because of the new actors in the region who are gaining prominence. 
and um, china for example i feel is really opposed to the construct of uh, indo pacific and they want to stick to the asia pacific construct which again itself has to do with the geopolitical dynamics in the region but uh, so to speak i feel like indo pacific is more of a mental map if i may say so rather than a area with defined geographical boundaries and i think just taking from that um it's also great gained recent traction in 2018 when the us renamed uh, the pacific command to the indo pacific command so i think by by doing that you know it it definitely gained a lot more traction and the term also began to be usefully uh, widely used so to say do we have to also consider that this is kind of a uh, an emphasis on the maritime aspect of geopolitical you know sort of just geopolitics in general but also geoeconomics which we're going to be talking a little bit more about of course that's a newer space within sort of connectivity uh in context but that the maritime space kind of takes the primacy here in this in this sort of mental map as you said Rushali where um it's not necessarily about the geography of asia per se in terms of landmass it's really the roots of connection between all of the different uh asian powers especially because uh in the indo-pacific as such you know you have uh just a series of islands of course that you know comprise the philippines and malaysia and you know all kinds of other pacific powers that are kind of in the center of this um you know competing geopolitical space for resources and and flow of resources the sort of malacca uh malacca dilemma in the malacca straits is kind of the prime example of that but if we're going to be talking about the indo-pacific is it only in a terms of like geopolitical con- conflict or or security interests that we're looking at this or is this just sort of a broader uh political construct in terms of the, the the mental map that it creates as well i think this might have been something you were about to get to mega in there but um why are we talking about you know in in what in what framework are we talking about the indo-pacific so i'm going to answer to the first question first like how, i just want to add on to what rushali said so the whole idea of indo-pacific i feel gained a lot of prominence in the second decade of the 21st century that's when china started rising and with the rise of china they wanted to change the global order in terms of their own initiatives they wanted the order as per their interests so i think that's when when there was a rising power it was a threat to an already existing power so the whole concept of theocrats trap comes into the play where in in fact president xi jinping mentioned in his speech at davos in 2017 that yes we are we ha- are coming at a point in the indo pacific where there will be a rise of sino uh, american rivalry and as theocrats says that it's inevitable to avoid a war but let's see how where this whole strategy goes and more than geoeconomics it involves a lot of military i feel because the whole idea of belt and road initiative it is an economic initiative but then this economic initiative is just to advance china's military power the whole idea why they're having naval military bases rather they're trying to have 18 right now is so that they can have some sort of leverage in those countries so that's what i feel it's it's an interplay of both geoeconomics and military i love that we're already kind of getting into the meat of this i think you've jumped several steps ahead of where i planned to be but before we jump straight you know head first into that that topic i just want to kind of 
ask, you know, are we only looking at the Indo-Pacific in terms of security? And right, you, you had a really great outline there and, and some, some other, you know, opinions thrown in about China's ambitions in terms of the Belt and Road, and we're going to get into that too. But what I really want to ask is this exclusively a security mental map that exists? Is it just about mapping the sort of geopolitics of the region? Or does it also contain elements of sort of people to people connectivity? Is this a, is this a is this exclusively a, a region that's kind of defined by the geopolitical movement of the day? I think it's interesting that you brought this up because that plays quite directly into India's vision of the region. While securitization is a very, very important aspect of it, especially in context of the US-China competition, which is clearly playing out in the Indo-Pacific, which is emerging as an epicenter for this competition, India's narrative, which is in itself very nuanced, it kind of is trying to downplay the securitization of it. And we need to look at uh, its narrative, which focuses on inclusivity, which talks about the cultural connection, which is why it's trying to rope in uh, the Southeast Asian nations, uh, harping on how they're connected through civilizational ties, people to people connect. There's COVID vaccine, vaccine diplomacy, which is coming in now. So securitization is definitely important. And I feel like there is an underlying security motive to all these moves. But even then, uh, I feel like we have to look at the individual countries' approach uh, beyond securitization, beyond their immediate security concerns. And in this context, I feel like Quad, despite everyone talking about how it is a security organization, if we look at countries like India and even to some extent Japan, and I, I feel uh, it is not exclusively talking about Quad in terms of a security alliance. Yeah, I think take from that, like when I feel that when the United States propagated the Quad, um, and sorry, and the Indo-Pacific, they were looking at the security aspect, but then sort of realized that the other countries on board are not willing to take such a hard stance, which is why what Rushali said about you know inclusive, inclusivity and uh, what the other countries feel as well, that sort of permeated into the overall security paradigm of it. But overall, I feel from what the Americans thought into going into this, it would be very much a security uh, concept to, to some extent, you know, constrain China's expansion. Which is what I think US is getting wrong, which is why I feel like the Southeast Asian nations are apprehensive about US involvement in the region because it's speaking exclusively in terms of anti-China, which I feel like is alienating the Southeast Asian nations. And even the even the South Asian nations a little bit. It's it's kind of easy to to understand based on you know you guys are for the way we look at this issue from, you know like putting ourselves straight in the middle of the the actual Indo Pacific in terms of maritime geography right. If we're just sitting right there, then it's very clear. Well, hey, you know if I'm X Y Z country, my foreign policy towards all of these regional powers in this area, all in the same space. Whereas if you're the United States, you're several thousand miles away. Uh, but, you know, if you're if you're sitting in Malaysia, you can't really afford to look at at your entire foreign policy exclusively through the lens of security and, and sort of defense. Right. And I think that's why the concept of Quad Plus came about, like so that they make sure they're also including Southeast Asian nations like Vietnam and South Korea and also New Zealand so that it doesn't just look at like those four dominating powers are looking at security aspect, but they're also including the Southeast Asian nations where we're looking at people-to-people -people touches, also connectivity. 
I feel like it's also interesting to revisit the origins of quads, if I may add, uh, Megha, like uh, quad actually emerged in context of the humanitarian response to the tsunami in the Indian Ocean. That is how the quadrilateral framework emerged. So it wasn't, it didn't have the security connotation as much. But having said that, I feel like in recent times, the recent moves, especially in context of Chinese aggressiveness in the region, definitely the securitization has gained a lot more importance. Isra, we, we talk a lot in terms of the Indo-Pacific about the, the actual more properly Pacific powers on, on that the end of the, the spectrum, if you will, and India in particular as a, sort of the, the largest actor in the sort of Indian Ocean area. But how is this move seen in, in countries like Bangladesh or, or Sri Lanka, which are, again, sort of smaller or more middle powers kind of trying to watch how this space develops and, and contribute to it or remain neutral? What's what's the look from Dhaka, for example? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so Dhaka obviously has a strategic relationship with... <laughs> Dhaka has a strategic relationship with India and has a business relationship with China. So on both sides, India and Delhi and Beijing are important to Dhaka's ideas of its political sovereignty because in both ways, political parties as well as business parties, they both have to look to Delhi and China. So in the subcontinent itself, China is gaining a ground in many countries, in many countries including Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal and Bhutan. But when it comes to Bangladesh, due to the current government scenario, Delhi actually has the upper hand. So it's still there. And so the Chinese in Bangladesh have not really gone to the point of politics. It's mainly due to the business interests they have. Chinese gives interest-free loans. China has been involved in making multiple infrastructure itself. Even during the pandemic, the Chinese have actually been coming. China has actually even provided Bangladesh vaccines as well. In, there's also vaccine diplomacy in this with with uh, with India. So when it comes to Bangladesh's role, it's we're not really sure which way it's going to go. But there is obviously a rising pro-Chinese sentiment in many quarters because China itself is seen as a more reliable friend than India. So I mean, in whatever way we talk about it, I mean, when you know America's alternative to China, America's alternative in Asia is China. So people do feel like China is a much better name, much better. I would say like partners than India is in this way because China seems China does China is seen from a more business perspective rather than from a political perspective well India is more both so I I want to kind of look at this when we're talking about you know other you know regional organizations we we're talking about ASEAN we're talking about Quad um some of these are more economic in character and some of these are more you know securitization um focused of the of the entire region but it seems to me in general, there's more of a trend throughout the sort of geopolitics and geoeconomics of the region that you have the larger powers primarily leading with a, a concern over security because they can secure the economic means some other way, if need be, right? So India, China, uh, the United States, these can all afford to like focus in on the security aspects. China is not as concerned because their, their primary motivation is the economic development um, in the region to begin with. And then you have all of these middle powers, which are are much more dependent or, or at least uh, malleable in terms of the, the economic uh, incentives at play, right? So what do you guys feel when, it, when we're looking at the, the, the middle powers, like you were just talking about, Ishrar? What is the primary concern of, of a lot of these different middle powers? Or is it really, really exclusively on a case-by-case basis? 
I think one of the things um, any country, including Sri Lanka as well, can in Nepal as well look into is is the history they share with India itself is actually quite uh, checkered, not unlike China, because for example, um, the history of every country in South Asia with India and large has actually been with India kind of taking part in its politics, whether it's war zones. I mean, in Sri Lanka, we had the Tamil Sinhala conflict. India actually played a pretty, I would, I don't know, a very mixed position in the war itself. It wasn't sure whether it was supporting the Tamils or Sinhalis, which led to obviously some catastrophic uh, incidents in its history, with its prime minister being assassinated. With Bangladesh, India has, Bangladesh has never actually had a fair deal to many people because of what's happening on the border. So China itself, since China isn't directly involved in its conflicts or its politics, people do think that in terms of security purposes, China seems like a more reliable partner as long as the opening of the markets as well. And, and so if Bangladesh can may open up to China, it does, actually have, it does actually have, let's say, a government in power, which it feels, because the Chinese government is entirely communist, so it's going to be there for much time. So it has a party which will always be private with interest compared to India, which is again, which is again, like, you know, with the current situation in India as well, with its um, uh, CAA and RC bills, which will raise a bit of concern in Bangladesh. China doesn't do that. So I think, in, I think India isn't really a neighbor seen by many people for security purposes. It's actually seen more like a big brother trying to control rather than, and then China is actually seen as a better neighbor in the sense that it doesn't really interfere at all, despite not even having borders with Bangladesh. Yeah, I feel it's a lot different now looking at the post-COVID scenario. So earlier, these countries were quite easy to trust China and they were they considered them to be a reliable partner, but after COVID, now everyone's being a little more skeptical. Like, shall we go ahead, take Chinese vaccines? Shall we go ahead, take medicinal supplies from China? So there has been a slight shift with countries becoming more careful and more skeptical than earlier how they would jump into taking investments or any sort of uh, monetary benefits from China. So right now we're looking at a kind of a different world order what is that because the virus originated there and 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 the sort of uh, fallout from not sort of immediately reporting that or is that i mean I, the transatlanticist in me wants to immediately point to the, the sort of shipments of faulty medical equipment or for example to to certain european countries it's all three reasons like firstly because it originated there and then there was no uh, like the, there was no truth that came out of the country and then secondly also there was faulty supply of medicines and third, now people are even doubting them the vaccines. So that way, India has rather been quite making a lot of, uh, quite taking the leading role in giving the vaccines for free to to its neighbors. So and they're readily taking it. So that way, there's been quite a shift in the balance. I think even if I could just add to Israel's. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Rishal. Amen. Right. Just, uh, I feel like Shantanu, you were probably going there as well. Like, but I, I have to point out uh, Chinese interference in Nepal. Uh, you do talk about <laughs> good neighborly behavior, but uh, I feel like that is probably the most important reason why the um, the South Asian neighbors are not trusting Chinese. I mean, I, that directly contradicts their long so-called stand about not interfering in domestic affairs, sovereignty, panchil which has all been violated by its blatant intrusion um, in Nepal, uh, supporting the Communist Party there and directly interfering in the Oli Prachanda fight. Shantanu, what is 
we talk about, you know, we mentioned, we alluded earlier to Sagar and the sort of COVID-19 diplomacy that, that India's undertaken. Is this part of a longer sustained policy to undo that or to, to, to tie, you know, greater to sort of meet China's uh, efforts to tie economic uh, development to, to the securitization framework uh, throughout the Indo-Pacific? Or is this something that, that India is just doing per se for, for its own benefit? Um, so uh, this is, I wouldn't say this is targeted at any country, um, especially not at China. And it's more, it's, you know, it's Sagar, which stands for security and growth for all in the region, is uh, basically, you know, India's doctrine of maritime cooperation in the Indian Ocean. And, um, you know, this was propagated by the Prime Minister in 2015. And in fact, two very recent aspects where this has come into play. One has been um, with, you know, the ongoing pandemic, where um, India, well, now, you know, is uh, helping out with vaccines across um, in the neighborhood and to a few countries in the Middle East. And I'm sure that will expand as well. But even before the, the whole vaccine aspect, there was uh, the supply of medicines, of um, you know helping people get back to their home countries that were stranded in India and vice versa. And uh, a second aspect, which is has nothing to do with uh, the pandemic, was um, India recently supported a massive oil spill in the Mauritius, which was, I think if I'm not wrong, was... Supported the cleanup of, I think you mean? Yes, yes. So they supported the, okay. the, the efforts to clean it up. And I think it was... That, that know, would be really bad press if you support the oil spill. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 for sure. So, you know, and this this sort of ties into it, whereas it's not only on the security aspect, it's not only on an economic aspect, but it looks into all domains, whether it's, um, you know, for COVID relief or even to help clear up an oil spill, because, you know, an oil spill, and especially for a small country like Mauritius, which can't... Uh, clean up something like this on its own and the effect it will have on the country and the surrounding ecology and biosphere. It's important that a big country in the region like India has such a doctrine to follow. So yeah, I do feel it's, you know, it's an all encompassing doctrine, but not pointed at any country. It's it's proactive. It's not reactive to India's policy. Yeah, exactly. I want to talk about then we've we've been kind of treating throughout this conversation the whole area of the Indo-Pacific but we've been talking about you know within South Asia specifically within uh, Southeast Asia where is the the increasing lines of connectivity right we're talking about increased lines of sea lines of communication right and um increased maritime activity and then increased cooperation not only between um you know other middle powers within each of the sort of discrete regions of south asia and southeast asia but between them as well um you've seen india engaging a lot more in the in the southeast asian region in terms of uh, security partnering and and things like that Again, is this more proactive Indian foreign policy that we're seeing, or is this more of a, uh, a kind of recognition that there's this larger maritime space to interact with? And then, you know, how much of the of the developments is is reactionary or not to China? And then, of of that, in what way are are these kind of nations working together to hedge against China, if at all? I think yeah, no, that, that that's a good point. I think. India was always aware of the space. I don't think that's something new, uh, but it's always been how much importance it's given it. 
And increasingly, you know, India is sort of being more assertive in its foreign policy in taking a harder stand against China. While we still would not, I don't think, publicly say that China is a strategic rival or, you know, diplomatically put it in harsher terms, but in terms of the positioning like increasing cooperation with the Quad, with the various countries in Southeast Asia, whether it's military exercises or, um, you know, potential arms trade and economically, you do see that happening more than before. And it is, again, definitely with the Chinese um, sort of shadow in mind. I'll have to disagree with Shantanu a little bit. A little bit. Uh, just with the first point which you pointed, said, I feel like in terms of India's maritime outlook, I feel like there was a con- it was a con- it was a conscious effort to ignore it, if I may say so, and that of course had to do, do with the fact that it had to deal with the continental threats. But I feel like there was an aversion to geopolitics, especially during the Nehru era. I feel, and the whole idea of Indo-Pacific as a theater of opportunity came up much, much later, only after the Act East policy came in, which is which is how I feel like it has interconnected the region within the whole banner of a free and inclusive order. Yeah, I just wanted to say that how it changed when we changed our policy from look east uh, policy to act east policy. That's when we started actively engaging with Southeast Asian nations economically. And then we also realized there's a huge presence of China in the Indian Ocean region. That is through the string of pearl strategy. And that's when, that's when we realized we need to leverage more than the Indian Ocean and also look at the Pacific Ocean. So just to counter China as well as increase our economic engagement in the region. So within talking about Southeast Asia, right, the, generally pointing to the center of the Indo-Pacific is the, the, the ASEAN bloc, right? How is ASEAN view the sort of development of the term and this, the mental map that we were talking about of the Indo-Pacific, right? There's this increased economic interest and increased security interest. So how is this impacting the way that they view and interact with the rest of the world? Countries like Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia are good markets for a labor community. So you have remittances coming from those, those countries as well. At the same time, as Megha was saying, the Lucas policy adopted by 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 India, the same, there's actually, we've also, even Bangladesh also actually had a Lucas policy actually because over, because um, from its independence, initially it was known it was a socialist state, for, and at that time it looked to Soviet Union. From Soviet Union, it went to America. But at the same time, overall, all these years, China has actually been a major player right now. So once you get once you get hold of the, of the Chinese, China as a as a friend, you kind of it kind of opens your markets up, you know, to Vietnam, to places like Japan, South Korea, and the other region as well. Because the ASEAN building block is act, like I mean, because comparative to SARC. The building block of South Asian countries, the ASEAN has done a much better job of resolving conflicts, whether it be the East Timor or whatnot. Relatively, SARC in South Asia is actually pretty not that effective, I would say, when it comes to like, solving conflicts. So I think there's a lot which South Asia can generally learn from ASEAN countries and as well as the way their markets have been liberalized without overwhelmingly negative effects. So I think we can learn a lot from the way they've done it. But just in terms of their, their sort of hedging and positioning as the as there's increased sort of emphasis on on that region specifically and it's increasingly a space for competition of either a security uh you know so either within a security dimension or in terms of sort of economic influence 
how is how are ASEAN countries, you know, variously dealing with with that sort of increased, you know, pressure, Shantanu? I think so to some extent, I feel that a lot of the countries, I mean, they obviously realize that. So when you look at this, you have to look at it in terms of hedging with who, right? So you've got China and then you've got the United States. And they all realize that China is right there, whereas, you know, the United States is across the Pacific. So they do understand that and they are wary of, you know, an American vacuum, like which was, I feel, more concern under Trump, who moved away from multilateralism and, um, you know, the allied the treaty system and the allies and all of that. And in fact, some um, ASEAN countries have realized that, you know, China is rising, has risen. There's nothing really we can do about it. And I think it's Cambodia, which has actually given a lot of control of their electric, the national power grid to China, where, you know, there have been arguments saying that they've basically sold sovereignty. But to them, it's sovereignty versus development, right? What can they really do? To what extent can they push back? And to what extent can they really hedge the United States to help them? So I feel that, you know, it's a dichotomy that's been increasingly understood. And again, from the American perspective, again, you know, unless there is that um, show of commitment to the region and to the various countries, I don't think that's going to happen. And interestingly, it's, it's you know, a, a way to see this is that on one extent, um, now, especially with the Biden administration, you have the turn back to multilateralism, back to supporting the countries in the region. But at the same time, the U.S. is still, you know, will put um, um, restrictions and sanctions on the various countries, whether it's in ASEAN or in South Asia, like for Sri Lanka, for example, possibly even Myanmar now. Whereas on one hand, you know, obviously they want to uphold human rights, but on the other hand, they want to court these countries against China. So it's a very difficult path, path for them to take. And I think these ASEAN countries have already understood this. I have to make a slight correction. It was Laos and not Cambodia, but in the same ASEAN <laughs> But very similar argument. <laughs> yeah, so I agree. Like how the ASEAN countries do try to play safe. They know they're... China has invested a lot in these countries, like, for instance, Myanmar. Likewise, they, there are Chinese projects running on the Meitsion Dam. It's running on the Letpadong copper mine. So there is so much that they've taken from China that they cannot oppose them in any way, in any dialogue. So they have to play well. They have to listen to China. But in that way, one of the South Asian countries... One of the members is right here, that is Bangladesh has played really well in terms of they haven't, they are taking Chinese investments, but they haven't let China gain complete control over them. They've still retained their sovereignty. They haven't let China buy them out completely. But if you look at Sri Lanka, Pakistan or Myanmar or Laos, Cambodia, these countries have given up their sovereignty entirely. So there's an entire debate going on whether Shah countries completely give up their sovereignty or just be a little more smart like Bangladesh and also use Chinese um, investments, but at the same time, retain their sovereignty. I want to ask two questions on what Mega just kind of posed there. There's some hidden 
arguments to be had there. Ansar, first of all, would you agree with the, that kind of interpretation of Bangladesh's approach to China and Chinese development? I mean, yeah, to an extent, Bangladesh has actually balanced both uh, India and China. I mean, America doesn't. America is no longer a major player in the politics of Bangladesh, not anymore since the Cold War ended. So, yeah, I mean, China, as I said, like, so when it comes to security and the politicization and whatnot, India is actually a top number pick. But when it comes to business interests and I think when it comes to future solidification of relationships, China seems to be like having a brighter option because even right now, even during the COVID phase, I mean, India's relationship with China, India's relationship with Bangladesh has always been very shaky and to, to a large extent also very, very controversial, whether with China, all the political parties, all throughout the spectrum have actually had a more open relationship with it, like, you know, like a more positive role, despite the fact that what's happening in China, the Uyghur, Uyghur, the Uyghur issue has never actually did anyone in Bangladesh, not even the most conservative right-wing parties. They seem to be okay with China as a country and because China is seen as a better alternative to India. So I do agree with Mega to an extent that uh, maybe Bangladesh hasn't let China seep into its entire politics, but again, the future looks bright when it comes to uh, Bangladesh-China relationships. Another point I just want to kind of ask, Rushali, would you agree with kind of Mega's assumption there that, that the, the the level of Chinese investment in, say, you know, Sri Lanka and, and, and other you know, Southeast Asian countries is a de facto submission of of sovereignty uh so if you know say sri lanka takes a a position alongside india and 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 vietnam on the south china sea issue for example at some point in time you know china can pull some some strings to make that painful but is that really a the submission of sovereignty to to sort of chinese influence or not right so uh, for the sake of this argument, I'll just separate the Southeast Asian countries and the South Asian countries. And if we're talking about the Southeast Asian countries, I am I, I don't think this argument of submission of sovereignty will go in because the economic relationship is slightly different where uh, these countries do have a, like uh, China knows that these countries are important to their own interest because the whole legitimacy of Indo-Pacific, in my opinion, I feel like holds in uh, the hands of these countries because whether it is India, whether it is Japan, whether it is US, all these countries have one thing in common, which is ASEAN centrality. And it is only with the ASEAN outlook for Indo-Pacific, which came out in 2019, if I'm not wrong, that China was shaken a little bit. Like uh, before that, it used to say that Indo-Pacific does not exist. It's still Asia-Pacific. But it is only after that that China came to recognize the region as a threat. So I am not entirely sure if the Southeast Asian countries have come under that influence. But when it comes to the South Asian countries, definitely. Um, Sri Lanka, of course, Hamban Tota Port is an example. But I feel like uh, that uh, like in with regard to Sri Lanka, at least, we also have to take into consideration that it is the Colombo port, actually, which is more important. And it is through the Colombo port that most of the uh, uh, trade, a uh, seaborne trade, which takes place. Having said that, of course, giving up your a part of your land to another foreign country is a huge, has huge security implications. So definitely they are compromising their sovereignty in that respect. Nepal is compromising its sovereignty in that respect. So I completely agree with me when it comes to the South Asian countries. But like I said, the Southeast Asian countries, maybe not so much. 
And the last thing I want to kind of really dive into, and this has been a, a rising conversation, especially within the, the sphere of the Indo-Pacific, um, is the role of middle powers, right? So we talk a lot about Chinese, you know, activity in the Indo-Pacific or even, you know, distant foreign powers uh, that are also, you know, there or involved in some capacity, right? Russia or, or France, and we haven't had time to get to those uh, in this discussion. And we talk about the U.S., we talk about uh, India, Australia, uh, the Quad, you know, Japan. But there's all of these other middle powers that are are, are very you know, significant in and of themselves, right? They're, as you said before, it's dependent upon their collective sway, um, how any any sort of calculus or, or policy turns out. Um, and while individually they're not... Um, you know, you know, as as significant, is there sort of a confluence of middle powers, most visibly, you know, with with the head of of ASEAN. Um, but do you see more middle powers reaching out to other middle powers to develop a more interconnected web? And what effect is that having on how China and India and the United States and and uh, you know other actors see the region as a whole? I feel like that is precisely where the complexities of Indo-Pacific come in. The smaller powers here can actually play a very decisive role. But again, I I might be slightly biased, but I'll still look at it through the lens of US-China-India competition in the region. It's because their influence is so interconnected that these countries cannot possibly, they know they cannot be a party to this a new Cold War in the region because they will be directly affected by it. If they go with US, which if you see providing them is providing them a security umbrella, so to say, it is China which is providing them the economic uh, uh benefits which is why i feel like countries like sri lanka especially i feel like it is in the best it's best geographically located in the best position to play a decisive role but they've had a lukewarm policy uh, with regard to indo-pacific at best so it's i feel like these smaller countries are still subdued within the larger uh, geopolitical competition and they haven't really played their role and i personally don't see an interaction amongst these uh, smaller players although i feel there should be yeah no i i sort of agree with that and um, especially because it's so diverse, exactly what Rishali said. But then to some extent, I feel it's also a free-for-all because, you know, you have these two or three larger players all tussling about and the middle powers just want to make the best of it, of the rivalry. They each want to reap the gains, try and play one country off another which, you know, if your middle power is a great, the hedging strategy, it is a great uh, path to go where you try and get uh, development, um, aid, you know, secu- security, umbrella, all of that by playing off the influence that you feel other the larger powers could have on you. And that's where, again, where the complexities come in. Because if each power is trying to do that, the, if each middle power is trying to do that, then I don't think you can really look at it as a whole in terms of just ASEAN. You have to go down to each country and look at what they're doing and then how, or whether it's India, China or the US, how they're interacting in that country. So yeah, you know, completely agree with... Uh, with so you would both say that there's, said. apart from, you know, the recent um, development of ASEAN, sort of having a statement or having a policy on the Indo-Pacific, albeit, you know, very vague and and sort of malleable there's not a lot of interaction between middle powers is that something we could potentially see in the future 
I know you've had a lot of, you know, you see lots of different outreach, especially, as, you know, I imagine a more multilateral focused Biden administration once it gets around to kind of really addressing um, sort of the, the complex system of alliances and with the, the Biden administration's, uh, you know, the foreign policy team's uh, know-how and, and recognition of a lot of the nuance of the region to begin with, that you might see more coalition building um, within these, you know, among these middle powers, or is this something that's just completely untenable um, within the region? Of course, the, each country is so very diverse, not just in its politics and its culture, but also in its, you know, sort of security and economic concerns that are particular to that country. But it's it's this interesting space where there's the current flows through each country, um, and you know it, it it changes amplitude as it as it passes through each right, and you get this very complicated um, mosaic. Um, mixing metaphors here, but is there a potential for a kind of outreach of middle powers to other middle powers to kind of collectively hedge or not? I, I see Rishali sort of smirking quite a lot, and I'm not sure if this is so, anticipatory uh, I, I, or... I, or... <laughs> I think your assessment is very optimistic. That's how I'd like to put it, because I don't see it happening anytime soon, really, because I feel like the ASEAN countries will continue playing it safe. Uh, they have RCEP. They have their economic priorities sorted. As for the South Asian countries, uh, an interesting trend, at least under Mike Pompeo, was where uh, the outreach to the South Asian countries, which he did, he did a tour, which included Sri Lanka and all these countries, like uh, uh, even Bangladesh, if I'm not wrong. So that I feel that, and over there, he made explicit mentions about the Indo-Pacific, how they will be supporting these countries and how US expects their support in upholding a free and open um, order and more interesting uh, thing was directly referring to the Chinese and calling the CCP's activities as intrusion, which these countries were uncomfortable with, which again proves that they are still uncomfortable with the competition which is going on. And for South Asia, given the history that these countries all like these countries have border conflicts, they have a long history. I a SARC has pretty much failed, and uh, so I I don't really see. Uh, uh, coalition building among the South Asian countries. I, I feel w within the ASEAN countries, you know, being neighbors, I, I mean, I'm not an expert on the topic uh, on those countries, but uh, I feel they have, you know, enough of their own contentious rivalries and problems as well, you know, as neighboring countries do. So apart from ASEAN, I don't know how much they would actually rally to form an internal coalition against um, the larger powers. I and I also feel they differ a lot in terms of their ideologically because there are some countries who are hard communists <laughs> like Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, and then some are pro democracy. So it's just that they will not come together to really take an active step against China. Well, that is all of the time that we have uh, for the podcast today. Uh, this has definitely been an engaging conversation and i'm sure we'll continue to return to the indo-pacific um and related topics throughout south asia and the south asia program will definitely continue to uh, to be examining these questions and issues from all sides um if you've enjoyed this podcast please do give us a rating and a review wherever you're listening to us it really helps get the uh, show out to new audiences you can find us on twitter and facebook and instagram and linkedin 
And you can find our website at www.bintlscholar.com. Support us on Patreon if you're interested in some cool exclusive content as well. But for now, from Shantanu in New Delhi, from Rushali and Mega in Kolkata, Israr in Dhaka, and myself in Cincinnati as usual, it's goodbye. <laughs>